Welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. We try and uh, sometimes succeed, Claude. Usually succeed, I would say. Well, that's nice. To have thoughtful conversation about the news of the day, address the existential threats to America. And today we'll catch up with Byron York, columnist at the Washington Examiner and Fox News contributor. Always up to beat, up to the story, breaking the story, ahead of the curve. It's our guy, Byron. We should ask him about his podcast, too, when he comes on. He has a podcast. We should. The Byron York Show. Said, we don't, we don't want to be selfish about our podcast. We, we can recommend another one as well. Right. They can listen to both. It's momentum, not competition. I got you. Yeah. Yeah, he'll refer them to us, and we'll refer to him. Right. And soon people's lives will be filled with podcasts. <laughs> Never mind. Another podcast we're talking about, too. Scholars and Sense. Scholars and Sense. Exactly. That's where I talk with Conrad Black and Victor Davis Hanson. Mm-hmm. And people can uh, tune into that by going to... Absolutely. Just go to scholarsandsense.buzzsprout.com. You can also find it uh, on Bill's Facebook page and his Twitter uh uh, page as well. And that's Scholars and S-E-N-S-E. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, Jane Austen Sense and Sensibility, not like the Business Channel. <laughs> C-N-T-S. <laughs> Scholars and Sense. What What is it again? Scholarsandsense.buzzsprout.com. But people can also go to wherever they get their podcasts. Google Podcasts, uh, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, all that stuff. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. Let's welcome Byron York to the show, columnist at The Washington Examiner and Fox News contributor. Hey, Bill. I want to talk about three of your columns. I think the three latest uh, things I've read. Um... Cheney, Liz Cheney, uh, where the president is, where, where he's going, what's going on, and the Biden mandate. You're familiar with all those who wrote them. But first, I'd like to get any f- further thoughts from you on the border. Uh, you had a visit to the border not long ago. We talked about it on Wise Guys, uh, the TV show. But uh, any further perspective on the border? Notice they've uh, cleaned up the facility at Donna now. Well, the thing that keeps striking me, and there's there have been all sorts of new um, bits of news about this. Uh, for example, ICE, um, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, has um, removed a record low number of people in um, April and then before that in March. Um, they're not, we're, we're basically not deporting anybody. Of course, Joe Biden promised to stop deporting people for 100 days. Who knows? Maybe it'll be longer than that. Um, but the, the big point is what strikes me is um, nobody in the U.S. government is trying to stop or slow the flow of illegal crossers at the border. Instead, the entire Biden administration is obsessed with housing and feeding and transporting everybody who comes across. Um, and it's, it's, it's an extraordinary state of events um, because clearly it seems to me, you know, you look at this, you see this flow of people coming over illegally and you, you say, we need to stop that. Uh, and, and the answer is no. Just keep keep going. And the weird thing is, I'm sorry, I get ramped up about this. No, it's fine. The weird thing is, is, you know, Biden flip flopped on the number of refugees. Uh, He was going to stay at Trump's low 
fifteen thousand number, and then he got you know um, he got whacked in the progressive world for that, so he raised it to sixty two five. Now, as far as refugees are concerned, if I understand this correctly, people apply for refugee status from their home country. Okay, so you're in some other country of the world. You you apply to the United States government for refugee status in the United States, but you do it when you're over there. And the United States government looks at you. They vet you. They examine you. And then they may decide to admit you as a refugee into the United States. In other words, the U.S. government controls who's coming in. Uh, and, and Biden wanted to keep that low and still wants to keep it a lot lower than people on the left do. At the same time, he, he's just struggling to house and feed everybody who's crossing entirely unfettered on the southern border. I, I, I don't understand why you don't have a larger number of refugees and try to actually stop the flow of people across illegally across the, the U.S.-Mexico border. I just, I just do not get it and never have. Those people flowing across unstopped are not refugees, correct? No, a lot of them are going to apply for asylum. A lot of them, they're coached by um, by immigration activists and others to say, you know, there's, there's kind of some magic words to use about them fearing for their safety if they go back to their country. I mean, some of them are in, like, bad marriages and things like that. They've had an abusive husband or something. So they'll come and say, my, my husband, you know, attacked me, and I'm scared of him, so I have to leave and come to the United States. And these are not reasons to come to the United States. Yeah. Um, but basically, the United States is just accommodating. The Biden administration is most just accommodating most of the people who cross. And by the way, just trying as quickly as possible to fly them around the United States uh, into places where they may have family or friends or former gang members um, or who knows. And by the way, one last thing, which is kind of interesting. I, I read about this. I think it was at the Daily Signal. I hadn't thought about it. Is um, obviously anybody who boards a commercial airliner in the United States has to present a certain type of identification. Usually, it's a driver's license or uh, a passport. And uh, people crossing the border uh, generally don't have that identification, and we don't really know all that much about them. But the Biden administration is basically waiving all the TSA rules to put them on airplanes to go across the United States. Um, and it, and it's, it, it, the, the problem is not that some of these people might not be granted asylum in a more sane system. It's that they're just scrambling, throwing out all the rules and accommodating anybody who's coming across. It, 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 meanwhile, they fight over a number of refugees that's smaller than the number of people for a year, that's smaller than the number of people crossing illegally in a month. Yeah. And with refugees, with refugees, the United States actually vets them. And that's the key principle here, which is the United States government should control who enters the United States. States. I'm going to keep going for one little more bit. Anybody who enters the United States from a foreign country, no matter who they are, the United, if, they, if they come in one of our airports or our seaports, the United States government demands that they, they produce documents to show that they have a legal right to be here. 
everybody. Yeah. And if you don't have them, you can be turned around and, and sent back. So uh, I don't think anybody wants to throw that system out. So that, for example, just anybody can get on a plane and they'll be letting the United States. No checking passports, no nothing. Does anybody want that system? That's what we have on the southern border. And uh, the Biden administration is simply trying to accommodate it rather than stop it. All right, let's stay ramped up. I want to stay with this because you raised so many important issues. One, um, what is the number here that has uh, come across so far, as best we know? I don't know. It's in the, um, gosh, it was in the 130s range in uh, March. It's, it, I mean, these are numbers that we haven't seen in a very long time. I saw was, 170. You know, was a, I saw 170. There was a, yeah, there was a spike in uh, 2019. Um, this is bigger than that. And, of course, in, in 2019. And is this... You know, is this for reason? Is this for because it's not Trump? That seems to be sufficient yeah. reason. Or is it let's uh, increase the Democratic voting rolls? Oh, well, obviously, the Democratic Party wanted a candidate uh, who would do the opposite of Trump in everything. And so I think that's kind of Biden's unspoken mandate is to be the anti-Trump in everything. Um, but I think, you know, I think with with um, with immigration and, you know, Republicans are split on this. I mean, Republicans uh, are divided about immigration. Some of them are much more restrictionist than others. Others are much closer to open borders than others. So um, I think there's a whole lot of motivations. Um, I think uh, some people have just kind of a, an idealistic view of the United States, kind of the yeah. the uh, 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 right. you know the the, the the poem. Emma Lazarus, yeah, sure. Emma Lazarus poem. And others in business, like, you know, see cheap labor coming across. And by the way, I mean, labor unions used to oppose uh, large immigration numbers because they felt correctly uh, that they could reduce uh, the downward pressure, you know, on the wages of American workers. Um, Churches, maybe they see more parishioners. Uh, Labor unions, maybe they see more members. Um, now, as far as voting is concerned, there is a, a path to citizenship that's required before you turn um, uh, people who cross the border illegally into a voter. So I, it's not as if the Democratic Party just sees all these people crossing the border voting you know, for Democrats next year. Presuming you have some voter rules, voter registration rules, well, yeah. and voter yeah. ID rules, which is also a debate but, that's going on. But clearly, immigration has transformed uh, California, for example, uh, California being kind of a one-party state now. Um, and you see a lot of difference, I think. In, I mean, it's not as if immigrants are, are some large, uh, homogeneous group. Um, you know, what we, we saw in, uh, in some of the counties in southern Texas that are 80, 85 uh, percent Hispanic um, went for Trump. Uh, because, I mean, these, these are not people who crossed the border last week. They're, they're people who uh, maybe originally from Mexico, but then the United States 200 years. I mean, they're, I mean, they've been Americans for a very long time. Um, and they're not happy with what's going on, uh, at the border. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, people have all sorts of different, uh, motivations for this, but Democrats are certainly united right now in their desire to not enforce our immigration laws at the border. All right, three more things on this. One, you mentioned uh, no IDs to get on these planes and go around the country. Also, no COVID tests, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, That's obviously – I mean, everything I've been saying would be true any time. But the COVID thing in uh, pandemic time 
is absolutely true. Um, it's been the system has been overwhelmed. Um, obviously, they, the authorities, won't let the press into some of these detention centers. That there's no social distancing going on, not enough testing, right. and it's entirely possible that they could be letting a fair number of people uh, who have COVID into the United States. All right. The the second thing is whatever the Kamala Harris uh, assignment. You know, she's working with these other nations, but I've thought from the beginning. You know, as long as it's a good deal to get into the U.S., you know, no matter how much money you give to these countries or waste on these countries, it's still going to be a far better deal economically uh, to come to the United States. So you're never going to equalize that proposition. You see no, what I you mean? raise a great point. You raise a great I mean, point. I, 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 I mean, what, couple... how much, how many trillions of dollars do you have to give to Guatemala, you know, till, you know, it's, it's an equalized uh, opportunity f- to stay in Guatemala than to go to, into Texas? Well, I think that maybe the whole premise of that is wrong. And what's interesting is right. we've seen in some left-leaning journals like Vox last couple of weeks articles about you know how this whole Northern Triangle strategy might not work because basically if you raise the standard of living in Guatemala, then you increase the number of people who have the means to leave Guatemala. And there are a lot of scholars and policy people who are quite serious about this who believe that the, the kind of things that the policies that the Biden administration wants to pursue in the Northern Triangle countries is going to actually increase the number of people who leave Northern Triangle countries wanting to come to the United States. So it's total backfire. Um, I'm not saying that's the intention of the Biden administration, but that easily could be the effect if they pursue this kind of policy. Well, if the premise is, whether it's the Northern Triangle or anywhere in the world, we're going to make the situation so that people don't want to come to the United States. That never happens as long as the United States remains the United States. Absolutely. And I, you know, you're right about the Northern Triangle. When I was down at the border, it's been, well, I guess, a month ago. Um, I think uh, that that time, border officials told me that they had had people from 80 different countries there. So, I mean, we focus on uh, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, but you're talking about people from a lot of different countries crossing uh, the border. And then my and then my third question is, you're ramped up, and I'm glad I asked you about this. Um, other than your more recent posts, which we'll get to in a second. But are the American people getting ramped up on this? Uh, Sort out Biden's approval rating, plus what I've seen when you break it down, uh, doesn't have an approval rating on the border stuff. And can can this affect his overall approval rating eventually? Well, yeah. I mean, if you you look at um, Biden's approval rating by issue, uh, the one issue where he's underwater is handling the border. Uh, but it hasn't been enough to bring down his whole approval rating because, uh, while you know, a certain number of people uh, think the border is a really big issue, and if you ask people, is the border a big issue or an important issue, they'll say, of course it's important because I'm I'm supposed to say that all issues are important. Uh, but the fact is, some are more important than others, and obviously, COVID and the economy. Um, are bigger issues to most Americans than what's happening on the border. So Biden, uh, Biden's approval ratings are looking pretty good now. Um, but you have to remember, I mean, it's based in part on, um, large part, on his handling of COVID in the last three months, uh, where the number of cases began a dramatic drop about the 10th of January, in other words, 10 days before Biden became president. Um, and the number of vaccinations was on a 
steep upward curve when Biden became president, and it continued. He continued that, and it went up and up and up, although it's been going down lately. Um, so, you know, Biden's being being judged on that. And he, he passed this enormous $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill that wasn't necessary. Most of it wasn't necessary. Uh, and now he's going to, I think Democrats have gotten into kind of a more of a thicket with trying to pass another $4 trillion in money to remake the United States as if, or rebuild the United States as if it's sort of in ruins and needs kind of a Marshall plan. Um, so that may take a toll on his popularity, but getting back to your original question, you know, is, is, is the, is the border an issue that's going to sink a president's popularity rating? My guess is probably no. Yeah. Well, and he's, you know, he's giving away money, which is, I was thinking of that. There's yeah. an old dialogue of Plato's where he talks about the example of the trial, uh, of the, uh, pastry chef by the doctor and it's a jury of children. And the doctor says, oh, the pastry chef gives you all these things that are bad for you. And, of course, the lawyer for the pastry chef says, stuff is so good. I mean, it tastes so good. It is such a nice thing. And so there's no conviction. The immediate sugar high, and it's the fact that phrase has been used. So there's a little bit of the corruption of the public here, a little bit of the what Irving Crystal, I remember, I first heard the phrase called the politics of bribery. Well, you know, and, and but a lot of politics is bribery. I mean, isn't sure. that what local politics is on? As a matter of fact, if you remember, after the election, after the November 3rd election, when Trump is claiming that he's won and there's this big controversy, you know, all of a sudden he comes out in favor of a $2,000 um, yeah. payment to all Americans. And I thought at the time, why didn't you campaign on that? I mean, you know, yeah, sure. if you go, elect me and I'll give you $2,000. I mean, that's a classic campaign sort of thing. Well, Republicans uh, it, are having trouble out. now, as a number have pointed out, uh, arguing against the big spending because not a word was said during the Trump administration, right? I mean, very... No, well, Trump was, Trump was never a fiscal conservative. Right. I mean, it right. never, right. ever was. And, you know, he uh, one, of the, one of the things Trump did, I guess you can say he kind of threw out Bushism and foreign policy and throughout Ryanism in uh, some domestic and certainly fiscal policy. And, um, you know, the people who said we got to reform entitlements, I mean, they got nowhere with President Trump. Nowhere. Um, so he, he just wasn't a fiscal conservative. So he would have had no problem promising everybody $2,000. I'm not quite sure why he didn't make that a big deal in his campaign. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, do you think this, uh, do you think either they'll finally put a cap or stop to this, go to Mexico and say remain in Mexico policy, please reinstate, or that the, or, or that this is going to really hurt them big time in the polls? Well, I, um, I don't How does know. this I come mean, out? Me, How does this end? To me, the remain in Mexico policy makes so much sense. Sure. Now, people will say to you, oh, the conditions in Mexico are terrible and it's inhumane to have people uh, waiting in these camps and everything. And my thought is, I mean, I'm a fan of throwing money at problems. I mean, sometimes it works. It worked with the vaccine, didn't it? Uh, I mean, sure. we just threw sort of World War II amounts of money at sure. it. Sure, sure. Um, and it got done in record time. So I don't see anything wrong with sending you know, a lot of money to Mexico to um, – to help with a remain in Mexico policy. Because the fact is, um, all of these crossers, all of them, wherever they're from, are crossing into the United States from Mexico. 
And in many cases, Mexico has not made a very big effort to keep them out of Mexico. So, um, so I don't see any reason with pushing that. But obviously, that's a Trump policy, and I, I don't think you could get Democrats to agree to it. So if you don't, I mean, Trump came up with that when he was frustrated on the wall. Um, Democrats totally stopped that, and they're absolutely against any physical barrier. And believe me, they're going to offer some big deal for citizenship in favor of big security at the border, and it's all going to be, quote, virtual security. Um, So, uh, you know, if you don't have have border security and you don't have um, uh, a Remain in Mexico program, uh, I I think somebody needs to get more creative because I can't think of what else you can do. So it keeps coming. Okay. Let's uh, let's move on. Recent posts of yours. Uh, Liz Cheney. What's the deal? I, I will tell you, I've been a fan of Lynn Ch- Liz Cheney for a long time. And he's smart, tough, her father's daughter, conservative. Uh, I would like to see her in leadership, even even speaker for the Republican majority. Not so sure now, as a you know, as a Trump supporter, I'm willing to forgive her, you know, um, you know some some sins here, but. You know, voting for impeachment was pretty strong stuff. And she seemed to be making kind of special efforts to, you know, come across the bench there and shake Biden's hand and say things about him. Well, well, where does she stand now? What's her fate? And, 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 and what do you think of my read of this? Well, she's what she, where she stands is on really shaky ground. Yeah. Um, next Wednesday, which is May 12th, there will be a meeting of House Republicans and their first meeting back, I think, since they've come back break. And um, and somebody's going to bring up a motion to remove her from her uh, leadership position. She's number three. She's House Republican Conference Chair. And it's probably going to pass. So she's going to be removed. Um, I have a new piece out just today. Don't know, if you, don't know if you had a chance to read that one. Kind of going into why this is this is happening. Um, the part about Liz Cheney being a conservative is absolutely true. Well, one thing is interesting, if you look at uh, 538's ratings of uh, voting records, Trump, uh, Liz Cheney basically voted with Trump throughout his presidency about 92% of the time. At least Stefanik, by the way, did it 77% of the time. And Liz Cheney voted uh, no on both articles of impeachment of President Trump in December of 2019. Um, so she had a pretty Trumpy voting record, actually even if she didn't like him. I mean, she's from Wyoming, which is hugely supportive of Trump. Um, so she voted how she voted. Um, what has happened is that uh, she has just increasingly, I think the basic way to say it is she has increasingly irritated her House colleagues. Um, on January 12th, the day before Trump was impeached, she releases a press release uh, saying that she's going to vote to impeach Trump. And it gets picked up big time in the press and thrown back at Republicans. Even your leadership is in favor of, uh, you know, impeaching President Trump. How in the world can you be opposed? And a lot of Republicans feel it's used to bludgeon them. And then so the next day, she votes to impeach Trump, along with nine other Republicans. Now, um, if you talk to to Republican leaders, they say, look, we know, we knew that some people were going to vote to impeach Trump. There's just no way that uh, Republicans would be unanimously against impeachment as they had been in December 2019. So we know that. And actually, it, I mean, they didn't like it, but it was okay with them. And as a matter of fact, one of the things I did was I looked at what about these other nine Republicans who voted to impeach Trump? Have they been punished? Have they been banished? Have they been exiled? Uh, and the answer is no. 
uh, I start the newsletter off with a, an announcement. It was on January 25th. A um, Republican representative named Dan Newhouse sends out a press release announcing that he has been chosen to serve as one of the Republican Party's assistant whips. So I'm honored to be selected, he says. And Steve Scalise, who's the Republican House whip, and he's the one who chose Newhouse, says, I'm very excited to welcome Dan to the whip team. Okay, this is January 25th. Twelve days earlier, on January 13th, Dan Newhouse voted to impeach Trump. Uh, wow, who knew that? Other other members of the Republican whip team also voted to impeach Trump. John uh, Katko, who is the uh, ranking member on the Homeland, I think it's the Homeland Security Committee. He's a top Republican on an important committee. Votes to impeach Trump, and he's still the ranking member on the committee. Yeah, they haven't been banished. They haven't been punished. Uh, and if if Republicans have wanted to banish Liz Cheney, not anybody else, but Liz Cheney is the only one out of the 10 they were going to punish, they certainly could have done it well before now. Well, is this because she's leaned leaned more, uh, and we've noticed that, like in the State of the Union or the so-called State of the Union, the address to well, Congress? I think that she, she she's has more prominent. kind of a press favorite. And what okay, happens is okay, yeah. she starts she, – this is January 12th. And the 13th is the impeachment day. She starts, you know, talking about it. She's active about it. Um, but it comes to a boiling point uh, about a week and a half ago, late April. The Republicans hold a uh, retreat in Orlando. You notice how every Republican and conservative event is in Florida now? They're, yeah, I no they're, all, they're all hoping Trump will come over and visit, I guess. United but, States um, and Florida. Well, it's also yeah, Florida. That's right. Florida is Florida's the whole country. So – Here it is. I'm going to read to you what a Republican told me. It came to a boiling point at our retreat in Florida when she, this is Liz Cheney, she's doing a press conference and she's still talking about January 6th and Donald Trump when we're all talking about unifying to defeat Pelosi's socialist agenda and win the House back. At that point, it became clear she's just not interested in working with the rest of us on a shared goal. Wow. So she'll go, huh? You think she'll go? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and the reason is that not that she voted to impeach Trump, but that she's not been able to move on. Yeah, I got And you. I think that Republicans think, you know, at this point, we're talking months later, Cheney could have come up with a stock answer when the media wants a – they're doing a Republicans are divided story. You know, every – there's millions. The Republicans are divided story. Let's get a quote from Dick Ch- uh, uh, from Liz Cheney about how terrible Trump is and that Republicans are enthralled to them. You know, she could develop a stock answer, which is, I voted to impeach. I explained my vote. I stand by it. But now it's time to move on yeah, to the right. pressing issue of opposing the Biden-Pelosi agenda and winning back on. the House in 2022. But she's not she moving on. She could do that, but she's mm-hmm. not doing it. She's not moving on. All right, let's move on to Trump then, since we're in Florida and everyone wants Trump to attend their meetings. What's going on here? Um, By the way, did I hear correctly? I don't want to get ahead of us, but uh, there was some straw poll that had uh, DeSantis ahead of Trump among Republicans. I know that at the um, uh, CPAC meeting, um, a a large majority of the CPACers said they wanted Trump to run but a considerably smaller number said they wanted him to get the nomination. 
You recall those numbers? I mean, I yeah. I, I don't recall the numbers. Yeah, but it was like it was like goal. it was like sixty and forty-seven something. Yeah, like that. I would I, look. I wouldn't be surprised. I would I would be surprised actually if Trump did not come out on top of any Republican polls okay. now and for a while, certainly for a while in the future. I think there's no doubt um, about that. And what you're seeing with Trump right now is he's clearly fanning the flame. Sure. Um, he went on Candace Owens's uh, show and said, quote, I look forward to doing an announcement at the right time. As you know, it's very early, but I think people are going to be very, very happy when I make a certain announcement. Uh, he went on to say that he, he couldn't say right now because of campaign finance reasons. Otherwise, I think I'd give you an answer that you'd be very happy with. So we're looking at that very, very seriously. All I'd say is stay tuned. Now, this is getting people all excited. Now, you have to remember, Trump is a showman, has been a showman all right, his life, right. you know, and he's keeping keeping the audience, you know, glued here. Uh, Mark Meadows, the former White House chief of staff, right. still close to Trump, goes on Fox Business, and uh, he's asked specifically, would Trump announce this run for his presidency? Would he announce it even before the 2022 midterms? And Meadows says, quote, if I had to lay a wager on whether he announces for president before 2022, I would place money on that. And I can tell you, based on my conversations with him, he would be an overwhelming success to make sure that he cleared the field where there would be no legitimate primary. All right. So you've got Mark Meadows going out saying things like that, trying to kind of scare people, scare, you know, potential candidates right, right, away. Right. So he's doing this whole thing. Um but the question is, do you really believe it? And personally, I do not. I, I don't. I have never I thought either. it was going That's to That's funny. Again. That's funny. I don't either. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll give you, you know, three reasons. Uh, one is uh, if anybody listened to me uh, during the presidential campaign, I constantly said that Joe Biden is too old to be president and because he's starting the presidency at 78. And so even one term, he would be president. So he's 82 years old, which is absolutely uncharted territory in American history. Um, Donald Trump would be 78 years old in 2024. So he's just going to be too old. I mean, and I'm, he may be really energetic and everything, but you're betting on a guy to be president until he's 82. And that's not a great bet. Secondly, there is a very robust field of Republican candidates, DeSantis, Pompeo, Pence, Haley, Cotton, Hawley, Nolan, a bunch of others. Uh, they're a strong group of contenders, and they're all going to run, all of them, on some sort of platform of incorporating Trump's achievements into a new Republicanism. It's yeah. all going to be based, not all going to be based, but it, a, a significant part of it will be about appreciating President Trump's accomplishments, right. bringing some of them back, right. incorporating them in a new Republican party. And then the final thing uh, is the voters. Now, obviously, Trump is the most famous Republican on the planet, maybe the most famous person on the planet. Um, and clearly, there's some segment of the Republican electorate that would vote any time, any day for him to be president. They wouldn't have voted for anybody else. But there are a lot of Republicans who appreciate what I was just talking about, appreciate his accomplishments in office, but they're ready to move on because it's not in people's nature to just go backwards. The, the whole world just tends to go forwards. Um, and I know Nixon got uh, the Republican nomination in 68 after losing in 60. 
Uh, and he, of course, had never won the presidency before that, like Trump has. But uh, it's very rare, very unusual in politics for people who want to go backward. And I think there are going to be a lot of Republicans who support Donald Trump, voted for him twice, who would say, eh, um, maybe not. He's, he should be the uh, party's elder statesman, and we appreciate everything he did, and we'll, we'll stand and applaud him any day. But it's time to move on. So uh, you would predict uh, Trumpism without Trump? Yeah. Well, no, it would, uh, Trumpism with Trump as the sort of but, senior statesman. But, but not as the nominee. Correct. Yeah, see, I've had conversations with Republicans who've said, and they lower their voices, you know, I look, you know, it'll be four years older. And, you know, we know we see the old age thing with Biden, what you're just talking about, Byron. Um, and, you know, and then I said, and four years grumpier. And, you know, and for those of us who think he lost the presidency, assuming that, you know, the election was valid, uh, that he lost it on, you know, more on personality than policy. Yeah. You, know, you know, suburban housewives, sure. all that. Um, that. That doesn't bode well. We don't need that again. We don't need all that again. And, um, and you know, and there's a strong field. I think I think it, that's the way it's going to be. Uh, you know, who will be the first Republican to stand up to the cameras and the president first and say, you know, sir, with all due respect, we're grateful for all you've done. And we want to incorporate almost everything that you did policy-wise. But we don't think you should be the candidate. Who will be the first to do that? I don't know. Yeah. That will be the subtext of all of the campaigns. I'm thinking about and it myself. I'm thinking about it myself. The idea, is to, <laughs> the idea is to do it with gratitude and appreciation. Yeah. And um, as I said, there are going to be some Trump supporters, and that's not a small number of people, who are going to be mad about that. And they'll be angry at whatever candidate you just mentioned. Um but I think they'll come around after a while. And besides, in the end, look, I don't think Trump is going to run. Okay, so the I think this is a a way to keep him Mm-mm. involved, to keep him at the center of the Republican universe, um, and to to keep donations coming into his political organization. So I think there's a purpose to what's going on now, and he's actually not going to run. So at some point, the question becomes moot. And that uh, no Republican candidate is going to have to explain why he's, quote, challenging President Trump, because President Trump is not going to be in the race. But until then, I think um, I think it's got to be this mixture of uh, of uh, appreciation, uh, gratitude, and it's time to move on. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, it's, we've all talked about what a kind of a weird gerontocracy we have in, in Washington at the moment That's anyway, right. where you That's have right. a president who's 78 years old. A Democratic House leadership, where what eighty is the youngest of of, of Pelosi, Clyburn, and uh, Hoyer, right? Um, and we, we it's it's time for somebody younger. And a lot of these, you know, all these people that I mentioned uh, are in the kind of sweet spot of age for yeah. presidents. Yeah. I guess they're all between about fifty and sixty-five. Um, so um, good, good. Before we move on to Biden, let me insert quickly. What is going on with Kamala? What's the deal here? Is she just not up to it? Is she just not interested? It seems that she's either not interested or not up to it or something. She's not exactly seized the day here. I, you know, I will confess to being wrong when 
when he picked her as running mate, I said, boy, you'll see a lot less of Biden and a ton more of Kamala. I was only half right. We saw a lot less of Biden. He stayed in the basement. But we didn't see a ton more of her, and we're not seeing a ton more of her on anything significant. She's not rising to the occasion. What, what, what is that about? Am I right? Well, I would agree with you that she's not being a real upfront in the news vice president, but I don't know why. Um, I, I, I really can't say. You know, Biden does not keep the most vigorous public schedule in the world, but he does get himself on the news on an almost daily basis. And um, I'm sure that's, you know, any president wants to make sure that he, the president, is the center of attention. Yeah, I, I don't know. President. Especially when you got a situation like a lot of people think Biden's not going to run again. She's the sitting vice president. You know, it seems yeah. obvious that she would be a successor to him. So I don't think he really relishes that day coming. So I think he's happy to stay up front. Yeah, sure he is. But, you know, what's with her? I, I don't know the answer to my question, but I'm quite sure the answer to my question is the same answer to, you know, after that stunning announcement she did in Oakland and that huge crowd, she just collapsed as a candidate for president. You yeah. remember, just collapsed. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why, but I my guess is it's the same answer to the question I just asked. There's yeah, something about her that the voters. Yeah, about it. yeah, and it's weird now. It's just she's just kind of missing. I mean, anyway, let's talk about Biden and his presence, uh, omnipresence, if not uh, physically, and not uh, you know every day. But uh, my gosh, he's he's flooding the zone. Uh, and acting as if he's got this huge mandate uh, and that this is what the American people wanted. You wrote about this as well. Well, uh, you are hearing a lot from liberal pundits about uh, Biden kind of taking his place alongside Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the New Deal and uh, Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society. And they're, they're delighted about it. I mean, you can just see uh, you know, can can Biden join FDR and LBJ in the Democratic Party's pantheon? That's an NPR. Um, Doris Turns Goodwin, the historian, Biden, like FDR and LBJ, sees opportunity in a moment of crisis. So a lot of talk about, about Biden in these, you know, these multi-trillion dollar kind of aimless spending plans that he has are just so big that, um, that uh, a lot of commentators are wishfully thinking that he's the new FDR or the new LBJ. But the problem is, the problem, uh, the voters have not given Biden anything near the power that they gave FDR and LBJ. When voters want presidents to do big things, they give them big victories, not only in their own elections, but in Congress. And and, and Biden really doesn't have either. Um, he won the presidency, 306 electoral votes. Trump's 232, same numbers as it was in 2016. He won the popular vote by a lot, 7 million votes. Uh, But we've often noted, you know, in the Electoral College, he basically won three states by a total of 43,000 votes, 44,000 votes. And those three states, if they'd flipped, that would have been it, right? Exactly. Georgia, Arizona, Wisconsin. So go back to 1932. Roosevelt is elected with 472 electoral votes. Now, at the time, by the way, you, you know, today you have to hit 270 electoral votes. Back then it was 266 because uh, we didn't have uh, Alaska or Hawaii. Anyway, 472 electoral votes. And 36, when Roosevelt is reelected, 
he wins 523 electoral votes. The Electoral College result is 523 to 8 for Alf Landon. He got uh, he won Maine and Vermont. Okay, that is a mandate. That is a big yeah. Yeah. big victory. Johnson Johnson elected 1964, uh, usually referred to as the landslide. He won 486 electoral votes. Okay, so these are vastly different presidential elections that brought FDR and LBJ to power on his own uh, than Biden. Totally different. And then you look at Congress. I mean, if you look at the numbers of Congress, uh, members of Congress in the 1930s and the 1960s, you'll be stunned. Um, There were um, Democrats in Roosevelt's first half term had 313 seats in the House. The next year they went. Next year they went 322. When he is reelected, 1936, they win 334 seats in the House. The Democrats, excuse me, the Republicans control 88 seats. You talk about a tiny, tiny minority. Uh, the Republicans are it. 334 seats in the House for this president who's been elected with 523 electoral votes. I mean, that is big. Same thing in the Senate. Uh, Roosevelt had, uh, when he got uh, elected, 59. By the way, there were 96 senators at the time, again, Alaska and Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 59 seats the next time, 69 seats. And when he's elected in 1936, he has 76 seats in the Senate. Republicans control 16. I mean, Republicans, I mean, yeah. it's amazing yeah. they continue yeah. to exist. Right. Last thing, Johnson and the Great Society. 295 seats in the House, 68 seats in the Senate. So the voters gave FDR and LBJ. Now, you know, history has not been kind to a lot of the things they did, but the voters gave them enormous mandates to do really big things. Such a mandate just simply does not exist today. No, but he's acting as if it does. Or he's saying, I got to get all this done before uh, 2022. Yeah, we can do this with 218 votes in the House, the tiniest majority maybe ever. And we can do it with a Senate that's tied 50-50. 50-50 tie can only be broken by the Democratic vice president. That is, that's just not the same as, you know, 334 seats in the House and 76 in the Senate. It doesn't look like he's going to get to 50 on these last two. Probably not. Um He's going um, to. I think there's a difference between something that has COVID in the name, where it gets passed, and something like you know the American Jobs Act, where, where they're going to rebuild and remake American society. And people think, well, wait a minute, I don't, I don't need to be remade. Um, yeah. Clearly, there are people who suffered a lot economically during the pandemic, and they should be helped. But this is uh, this is not that. And there's no question. This is not a center-left presidency. This is a left presidency. I mean, when AOC says he's exceeded our expectations, that kind of says it all, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, as a matter of fact, my newsletter was, if if Biden is a centrist, why do all the leftists love him now? Um, And what we've seen in the past two, three weeks is a lot of people on the left, including AOC and even Bernie Sanders, who can be grumpy about Biden, um, they've been pleasantly surprised by how far to the left the Biden administration has been. Who's in it's charge like, there? Is it is it the Sanders and AOC? Is it these uh, 32-year-old women, uh, Saki and uh, whatever her name is, communications director and and the others? Uh, well, I, think, I think, look, I think Biden sees 
as anybody could. He's an old guy from another era, and he, but he's he's smart enough to see that his party has changed. Uh, he cannot um, uh, govern like it's 1980 um, or 1988 when he first ran for president. And there are other voices in charge. He'd get his head handed to him if he uh, tried to uh, actually be a centrist. So these are the people who got him elected. He's going to do it. And he's going to, and, and the, the thing is, is that he can um, cloak it in being the new FDR who was president when he was born. Um, so um, I think Biden has just seen reality, seen where the Democratic yeah. Party is now and just given them what they want. What about uh, one other thing? And, and this is something I, you know, I live in, I live in all the time. I'm just curious your perspective. You know, for 45, almost 50 years now, I have been working on the education stuff, waiting for a turn. The American people say, wait a minute, there's something fundamentally wrong with this system. Um, two, 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 three factors. One, uh, teachers aren't going back to school. We see this memo from the AFT to the CDC, which is then comes out yeah. almost verbatim. Two, big effort to teach critical race theory, which in effect says one race is, you know, we should discriminate now and in the future. Um, the way to handle discrimination in the past is to discriminate now. Something wrong here. I mean, I, China's number one in math. We're 36th in math, 36th. And we're teaching this stuff. You can be sure China's not teaching ethnic uh, relations with one race better than the other, except maybe they goes without saying that, you know, being Chinese communist is better than being Uyghur. Well, um, I do think I do think this actual this revolt of parents is actually going on in places at the local level uh, because obviously parents want their children back in school and um, a lot of schools are open now. I mean, we, we shouldn't act as if everything is uh, like every teacher is unionized and every school is closed. But it was very clear pretty early on that the teachers' unions which do have a disproportionately powerful voice in the uh, Democratic Party and the Biden White House, didn't want to go back to school, just did not want to go back to school. And they raised questions about uh, the teacher's health when people would say, well, you know, look, children, especially young children, do not seem to actually get COVID very much. It just doesn't seem to be a big risk. Um, and they would say, what about the teachers? The teachers, you know, some of them are 65 years old and some of them are, yeah. are, yeah. um, have health conditions, uh, pre-existing conditions. And well, now we have a vaccine and a number of locations made, uh, put teachers on a priority list to be vaccinated earlier than other people. Um, and they still don't want to go back. And so we, we saw this, um, amazing situation in which the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, uh, sent language to the CDC, and the CDC included it, cut and paste, word for word, uh, in guidance issued the next day. Pretty bad. So, well, you know, we, we, we shouldn't be kind of naive about Washington. There's some, there, in Washington, for many, many years, you've had lobbyists, um, of course. you know, uh, telling lawmakers what, you know, what they want in regulatory bills and things like that. Um, yeah, what's really striking science. here this is the science. The CDC is a scientific yeah, agency, right. exactly. Right. Uh, so it's it's just very different, uh, and it it's not surprising and amazing at the same time. Let me let me ask you this too. Uh, and you don't have to agree with me, but I've been challenging a lot of the hosts on Fox News Channel, where I'm a contributor. Are you a contributor to Fox News? I am indeed. Yeah, and that is to say, well, yeah, but you know, in all this, the unions. 
Don't blame the teachers. Don't blame the teachers. Well, I'm sorry. You know, the union is a creature of the teachers. Now, you know, a lot of the teachers don't agree with what the union's doing, but a lot of them do agree. And I've dug deep on this. And yes, majority of teachers say, yeah, we should go back to school. But uh, the union spokesmen say we should go back to school too. But a majority of teachers say we should go back to school with the following guidelines. And they look very much like what the union says. So, you know, I'm all for celebrating teachers. I love teachers. Never come out against teachers. But these teachers are part of an organization. And if they didn't like what the organization were doing, enough of them, they could stop it. I think you're absolutely right. And we should just note that everybody says they want to get back to school. Yeah. That you're supposed to say that. So they all say that. Yeah. It's just that the the policy, there's just always an objection when you actually talk about literally getting back to school. Yeah. Yeah, I just, let's not be sentimental here about this, about the teachers. You know, some of them are, you know, there was that teacher that that cop stopped in California. You know, if you saw that video, you know, she said, I'm a teacher and you're, you know, you'll always be a Mexican. You'll never be white. You know, I, you know, that's, I'm afraid that's a teacher too, is my point. That's pretty extreme. Right. But they're not all, not all there and uh, wonderful and idealistic. And a lot of them are swallowing this curricular junk and it's a it's a it's a tough situation this is why homeschooling is growing and charter schools catholic schools religious schools private schools people yep. are wondering what it is they're getting for their tax dollars you're gonna get ramped up yeah <laughs> yeah we'll end like we started byron now this is great as always tour de force and we're lucky to have you thank you so much we put links up to all your pieces and uh, thank you byron york thank you bill great being here appreciate it bye-bye you're listening to the bill bennett show That does it for today's show, folks. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter, William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. I'm still allowed on Facebook? Yes, you are. You posted the other day. So I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Yes, you are. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. Claude would too, wouldn't you? Yes, yes. It's uh, BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. 